We'll begin with uh, this reading of scripture from Mark chapter one. It says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. This is the word of the Lord. So I know that as you're sitting here right now, you're thinking, now wait a second, this is a series on the book of Mark and we just read three verses. At that rate, we're gonna be spending a lot of time in the book of Mark and you'd be right, approximately four and a half years we'd be spending in the book of Mark if we did three verses per week. I calculated it uh, just to keep myself honest. I don't think that we're going to go quite that slow but there are some some introductory sort of issues that I wanna lay out for us. Uh, So don't be scared if we spend a few weeks in chapter one. Hint, we will be spending a few weeks in chapter one, but don't let that dissuade you. A lot of thought and prayer goes into the selection of what the sermon series are, and we've spent a lot of time in the Old Testament, which is a section of scripture that I love dearly, Uh, but we felt that it was time for us to interact a little bit more explicitly with, with Jesus. And if that means we spend a few weeks back to back learning about what he was doing and saying and teaching, I think that's a good thing. So we will be exploring some of these issues in the book of Mark. Today I just kinda wanna lay the groundwork for that. The way that we're gonna go about this is trying to figure out a good historical and uh, literary reading of the book of Mark. A lot of times when Christians jump into the Bible, it's as though they read the verse and then they just kind of rip it up off the page and say, what can I get out of that? And usually the implication is not just what are the blessings for me, but how can I live a better moral life? And it's almost like the way that we read is through the lenses of pietism. We just want to be better, we want to perform better, we want to perhaps in in some very bad versions of this, earn God's love. As some of you have heard your whole life, we're saved by grace through faith, yet I know for me, I, I like to earn my salt, as they say. And I kind of bring that to, to the table when I'm thinking about my own walk with Jesus. If I sin, then I feel like, oh, I've gotta make that up, I've gotta do something that's gonna make him like me again. You know, we, we kind of fall into that trap of, of doing and doing and doing and taking from the Bible and just seeing how we can be better people when, when really sometimes that's so distinct from the gospel that we're just reading the Bible through the lens of, of morality. I don't wanna do that. I kinda wanna dip back into the scriptures and see what in its historical context these verses are saying to the original audience and also so, so we can take that and figure out what it says to us. I think that if we miss that step, we're missing a very important component of how to actually read the scriptures in a way that makes sense. However, that is very difficult for us as Christians and there's three reasons that N.T. Wright uh, claims make that process difficult. He says, number one, the first reason for our being puzzled is that for most of us, Jesus's world is a strange foreign country. And indeed it is. This is first century Israel. This is 2000 years removed from where we are, but also thousands of miles to the east of where we are. A different culture, a different practice, a different time, different rituals, different ways in which they thought about religion, different ways in which they thought about the world. 
this, this group of people did not have the benefits that we do in knowing about um, certain things that we have figured out over the last 2,000 years. And we see that there's difficulties in this because a lot of times we'll miss some of the, the beautiful goodness of the stories that Jesus tells. Like when Jesus is trying to explain the kingdom, he'll say things like, oh, the kingdom is like um, seed that's thrown all over the place. Some of it falls on the road, some of it falls on good soil, and some of it falls over here in the thorns. And we're thinking like, oh, what? Why would you ever be throwing seed on a road? It just doesn't, doesn't make sense to us. Or the story about the, the prodigal son. The intro, and I'm sure some of you know this, like the intro to that story where the younger son goes to dad and says, hey dad, I'd like my inheritance. In that culture, that was the biggest slap in the face of all time. It's as if the son is saying, hey dad, um, I wish you were dead. Give me the things that I would receive when that's happening so I can get out of here. So it's as though he, he just wants his dad to, to be gone so he can have this money. And as we see in that story, he goes and wastes it on prostitutes and food and parties and all this stuff. And then he ends up in a pigsty thinking, man, even the servants at my dad's house live better than this. If I could just go home. And the reason why he's so scared of that is not because he just did something wrong. It's like he basically said, dad, I hate you and I wish you were dead. Now he's got to go home and, and make sense of that. Um, Emmy, a, a few months ago, preached a message about Jesus talking about the kingdom again, and, and the text was, the, the kingdom of heaven is like this bush, and the birds of the air come and perch in its branches, and we're thinking, it's strange. What's even more strange is when you dip into uh, the context even further, the word that's used for the birds there are the words that are used for the unclean animals in the Old Testament that Israel was supposed to say, like, no way, you get away from me. And here, Jesus is saying, those unclean birds, they're perching in the kingdom. Things that you thought were how the world is, I'm turning it upside down. And we miss so much of that understanding because we're so far removed from Jesus's culture and Jesus's world. But if the first reason for the puzzle is that Jesus, is his, if his world is strange to us, the second is that Jesus's God is strange to us as well. When Jesus rolled up onto the scene, the things that he, were, he was saying were completely radical. The people who thought that they were in the kingdom, Jesus goes on to say, and the people who are so far on the margins, Jesus is basically welcoming in. He goes and he has these dinners with folks that as we'll see in the next few chapters, the people around would say, why in the world is, is your guy, Jesus, eating with these people? They're sinful. He shouldn't be doing that. And Jesus is like turning again on its head what God is saying to, to the world. Um, this third difficulty would be Jesus spoke and acted as if he was in charge Again, because of Jesus' view of who God is and what God is doing, he kind of takes upon this mantle of bringing the kingdom to earth. And the things that he begins to do and say in that context forces the religious leaders of the time to want to kill him. Oftentimes we'll see Jesus doing something that we think is, is pretty good, and then the religious leaders are just so furious, they just want to throw a stone at him. And then he'll disappear like a crazy magician. And you're trying to figure out what the heck just happened. But his way of going about life is so informed by his understanding of kingdom and God's movement on the earth and the fact that he is the one through whom God is reconciling all things to himself. It doesn't really go with what the surrounding world thought God should be doing at that time. And it's very similar in our own context where we have ideas and we have these presuppositions about who God and Jesus are that have been given to us by things like this. 
For the older crew in the room, perhaps you've seen this film. This is Jesus of Nazareth. This was like one of the first Jesus movies of all time. Note the pretty blue eyes. The very, those are blue, right? Okay, thank you. Colorblind, still can't tell what color eyes Kate has. I swear they're green, she swears they're blue. We'll let you decide who's right. But like, very white Jesus, very not Middle Eastern Jesus, and this becomes like our, our way of understanding who Jesus is. When I was growing up, uh, there was a picture uh, in the vestibule of the church, and that probably puts me in a certain context right there when we're walking into the vestibule. Right to the left, it was this painting of Jesus who's knocking at the door of my heart, which also altered my views on anatomy and what was going on here. Like I just had this little doorway and Jesus, little man Jesus inside there kind of get in and it was strange, but like a vestibule is like um, an outer entryway. So you walk into this entryway and then you go into it, yeah, a foyer. Or as the folks at Asbury would say, the narthex, okay? Just get on their level, all right? but you, you see this picture, and for me, this brings back not just images of, of what this represents, namely flannel graphs and altar calls where Jesus is presented as the alternative to hell. You don't want to burn in hell, do you, little six-year-old boy? No, I don't. No, I don't. Well, then you better accept Jesus. I will. I will. Okay, I will. <laughs> that sort of stuff for me is, is very... Uh, very present. Others of you know Jesus through the lens of Jim Caviezel, which is strange because you also know Jim Caviezel as the Count of Monte Cristo and whoever his character is in Person of Interest, which I don't watch, but you still have these, these films and these shows that have informed who you are for the very pagan uh, folks in the room. Perhaps it's the family guy and their caricature, not just of Jesus, but their caricature of the church that's so clear. Uh, When I was growing up, it was the Simpsons and Ned Flanders and those sorts of ideas where Jesus and Christianity and church um, were just lampooned in culture because of the church. As you sit here, Jesus is only as good as the followers that claim to be running after him. And for some of you, you have been hurt, you have been scarred, you have been um, completely and utterly affected in a negative way by the church. So much so that your presuppositions of who Jesus is don't look very much like the Bible. They look like that person who hurt you. They might look like your mom or your dad who took the Bible and and held it over your head and just waited to drop it on you whenever you did anything wrong. It might be your teachers in school or your Sunday school teacher or your experiences or just how when you lived out life, the things that we say sometimes in this room during these next few minutes where it doesn't seem as though it works. When the prayers that you've prayed don't get answered, when the love that we claim is offered to you, you don't experience or feel. All of these things factor into this very difficult matrix of who is Jesus. It's not just the difficulty of opening up the book and trying to figure out historical and literary context, it's also the baggage that we bring into these discussions. 
the way that your knowledge and the way that you think has been radically informed by your experience. Tonight, I just want to look at really this first phrase of the book of Mark and talk about three points that come straight from it. It says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Talking about the beginning of the gospel, for for Mark, as he pens these words, the very first word on the page in Greek is RK, this beginning. It comes out out of nowhere almost. This was a common literary practice where people would just kind of start and go for it. Mark's style is very terse. He doesn't use flowery language. He just kind of gets to the point and then moves on almost at a breathless pace because he's got so many stories and so many things that he wants to tell you about who Jesus is. Remarkably, it's the shortest of the gospels, but yet Mark is just story to story to story to story, just going all over the place trying to give you this idea of who Christ actually is. And he begins the beginning of the good news. Some people see that first phrase as an introduction to what they call the prologue of the book of Mark, Mark which is either um, verses one through 13 or according to some people, one through 15. It doesn't really matter where you, where you put that marker, but for them it's like this is the beginning and it's got a, a, an end and then we're gonna see Jesus' ministry in action uh, from 1.16 and following. So they, they kind of locate this beginning as the first few verses. It's also true though that this phrase begins in a very literal and metaphorical way, uh, the book itself. It's as if Mark is saying, what I'm going to give you right now is the story of the good news. What I'm going to tell you is the thing that you've been waiting for for centuries. What has happened to us right in front of our eyes, what we've seen over the last few decades and how we've seen that play out in the church. This is the story of of everything that we've ever held together as a people of Israel coming to fruition. So in another sense, you could say that this beginning is a story of the gospel which is coming to fruition for the first time in the entire biblical narrative. Now, I know that that's not a true statement in and of itself. I know that there's foreshadowings of Jesus from the very first pages of the Bible. After Adam and Eve sin, we see God talking about how there's this serpent that's going to be striking at the heel of the woman and there will be enmity between her offspring and the serpents and at one point she will crush the head of the serpent. Her offspring will crush the head of the serpent. And We see in that image a foreshadowing of Jesus who's going to do away with sin and death and the problems of the fall. We also see these stories in the Old Testament that kind of want us very carefully and slowly to move beyond them and see Jesus as the culmination of those events. Things like the Exodus where Israel is oppressed, they're in slavery, they're in bondage, and God leads them through the Red Sea and through the wilderness into the promised land. And we see how even the way that Mark tells the story, it's like hints of Exodus. But it's as though Mark is saying, this is the real Exodus. It's not some guy leading us to wander around in the wilderness. It's some guy who is taking care of the wilderness completely and entirely. So I know that there's hints of this happening, but for the first time, it seems as though Mark is wanting us to see right now, at this point in the story, it all begins because of this guy, because of what he's done, because of what he is doing currently. Says the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, and Mark is linking this story of what's happening to the past. 
This is common practice in the Gospels. Matthew does this all over the place. Thus fulfills the writings of the prophet, whatever, Jesus. It's as though in light of the resurrection, everything has changed and they begin to see everything through the lenses of Jesus. The second word that we reach here is gospel or good news, the beginning of the gospel or beginning of the good news. In this context, um, for an ancient audience, they would have heard not what you are thinking. They would not have heard somebody outside of a 76ers game with a bullhorn saying, if you don't wanna go to hell, you better accept Jesus. Here's a track. They wouldn't have thought that. They would have thought this is what people do when they announce victory. Remember that song that we sang? Shout it, go on and tell it from the mountains. Like it's got rootings in the Old Testament. It's got rootings in uh, the book of Isaiah chapter 40, which is also the same chapter that Mark is quoting in verse three. It says, you who bring good news to Zion, the root there is the same root that's used for this word, euangelion. It's a gospel word the one who is going out to be the ambassador of this message. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. It says, lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. They would have heard this in the back of their mind, the beginning of the gospel, the beginning of the announcement of victory, the beginning of the announcement that the war is over. One New Testament scholar whose name very sadly is Boring, Professor Boring says, the beginning of the good news of victory from the battlefield. Jesus has won. Jesus in his life and his death and his resurrection has brought about victory. And now the people collectively begin to shout that we have won. The beginning of the good news of the victory from the battlefield. In our context, the gospel is typically presented like this. The gospel is not too far from the guy outside of the 76ers arena saying, if you don't wanna go to hell, this is what you need to do. It turns it into an altar call moment and it turns Jesus' activity into what Jesus did for you, what Jesus did for me what Jesus did to save my sins. Now, I'm definitely not here to say that that's not true. I believe that as much as I am standing right here. It's called the substitutionary atonement where all of my junk, all of my sin that demands uh, payment, I cannot pay. And Jesus took that on and paid it for me. But I do think that this way of thinking about the gospel is severely limiting what Jesus actually did. When Mark says the beginning of the gospel, it wasn't just the beginning of this good news that now you don't have to be, you don't have to pay for your sins anymore. It wasn't just now you don't have to go to hell. It wasn't just now you get to go to heaven. It was Jesus is changing everything. And his victory that we proclaim is bigger than you. And it's bigger than me. Uh, Paul, writing to the Colossians, says, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ and through him to reconcile to himself all things. This idea that Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection 
is cosmic in scope. It's not just me and it's not just you, it's us and it's we and it's community and it's the world. When we give these altar call moments, which I'll tell you, as a church, we struggle to give you opportunities to accept Jesus because I think in our minds we don't quite know how to present that. Well, here it is. This is the presentation. Through Jesus' perfect life, through his substitutionary death, through the fact that he took on all of your stuff, your brokenness, your hurt, your suffering, your sin, your shame, your guilt, because he bore all of that, because he died that death, but not just stayed there, he rose again, and because we believe that he lives even now, we get to become partners with him in reconciling all things to God the Father. It's not just about heaven or hell. It's about us bringing heaven to earth right here, right now through acts of justice and service and mercy and grace and love. Our lives probably won't be that transformed if we just don't wanna burn forever but our lives will be transformed if we see ourselves as active participants in bringing heaven to earth and becoming a partner with Jesus in the project of restoration. For Mark, that's what it is. It's the beginning of the good news that Jesus has won and we get to tell it to everybody and we get to live it and we get to model it and we get to go out and fight for justice and advocate for the broken and take the people on the margins and bring them in and give them community and life and hope and family because that's what Christ has given to us. When we view it in those terms, it's difficult to have that moment of who wants that? Raise a hand. I mean, seeing what Jesus is asking us to be a part of is not just, do you, little six-year-old boy, want to avoid all of the consequences of your sin? It's, do you want to partner with me in changing the world? My prayer is that we understand that more and more all the time as we begin to walk that out, and I'll tell you, it is difficult to do so. It's difficult at times to follow the commands that Jesus is giving us, not just in the don't do this, don't do that, but in the think of yourself less and others more. Give the cup of cold water to the person that needs a drink. Give clothes to the person who's sitting naked. Give food to the person who's hungry. Sell all your junk and give it to the poor. Like all of those things that demonstrate a transformed life, a life that understands the gospel beyond just you and just me in this cosmic transformation of the entire world, this reconciling of all things to God the Father. Man, that's compelling. And that's a gospel collectively that we want to invite you into to become part of this movement. Third word is Messiah. The beginning of the gospel of the, or the good news of, of Jesus Christ, some translations might have, but that word Christos is basically just this idea of Messiah, which is so um, pregnant with meaning for a first century audience. This is the person that they had been waiting for for centuries. And now they see God's 
movement culminating in this one person, the story coming to its beautiful and surprising end in an unlikely first century Jewish figure who revolutionizes the world. When we think about where, where we are and, and how we understand God and his movement and what's, what's going on in the world, I, I fear as though we oftentimes limit who Jesus is and who Jesus is calling us to be. If we understand these three terms, just in those first few verses of the book of Mark, I think that we should be excited, that we should be anticipating the beginning that happened 2,000 years ago and is still playing itself out right now as he's inviting us into this, this big project, this big restoration movement, this act of reconciling all things to God the Father through Christ. And it begins to change who we think Jesus is. It's not just the guy that gets us into heaven, but it's the guy that has changed everything in human history. And it's my hope and it's my prayer that we don't just sit here and want to go to heaven, that we sit here and we want to be transformed into the image and likeness of Christ. And that means that we work, that we work with him and that we work through him and that we fight for the broken and the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized and we invite them into new life and new hope through Jesus.